Welcome to this podcast with me, Claire Penketh, from BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT. In this episode, we are out and about. Earlier this summer, I went to the How the Light Gets In Festival. It's a music and philosophy event that prides itself on delivering deep debates with leading experts on the big ideas of our time. And this year, there was a strong tech and science theme at the Hey On Why event. The debate around whether AI is a force for good or not has been raging over the past few months. Sitting in the sunshine at the back of one of the tents at the festival, I asked Dr. Joshua Bach, cognitive scientist and AI researcher, what he thought about the hype around AI. It was a question he'd already put to his thousands of followers on social media. And I asked people, were you surprised that uh, GPT-3 came out and were you surprised about Delhi, about these image generators and so on? And the vast majority of the respondents to my informal and non-representative poll were very surprised. And this implies that AI and deep learning have been underhyped, not overhyped. So I think that people are possibly still vastly underestimating the impact of these technologies, despite this being the hype right now. But uh, with respect to the fears, we have had many technologies that created disruption, like when we created automatic weaving machines. Now, uh, if we can weave words and thoughts automatically, is this going to make the world worse? Or is it the first technology that we are developing that's going to make everything worse? I doubt it. So in practical terms, systems like ChatGPT, this thing gives people superpowers. It's really amazing. It's like a tutor, or uh, if you're not very smart, it basically enables you to do things that would require you to have a very extensive education before you could do them. And also, if you're an extremely smart person, it gives you superpowers, because now suddenly you have a thousand interns for $20 a month. And, and that is really, really good, right? It's only the people in the middle who are terrified. If you are somebody who is only pro- uh, completing prompts, you give them an expectation, and they conform to the expectation and do exactly the expected thing. These people can be superseded. And a lot of those are today's academics and journalists, unfortunately. So they're very terrified of this. And this can be automated now. Speaking as a, as a journalist, I'm, I'm rather concerned, actually. <laughs> but, you know... Uh, and also, at the moment, ChatGPT is not very accurate. Yes. And it's because it's dreaming. It's not coupled to a reality. It uh, doesn't know who's talking to whom. It doesn't know what's actually the case. It's much more like a disembodied mind that is uh, taking thoughts over many, many people in many, many contexts and finds statistical similarities in them and is basically a big dreaming cloud. And you uh, call into this and you get back an echo that is reflecting over all the regularities that have been discovered in the interaction of people in text over many centuries, in some sense, that have found their way into the internet and in books, and then eventually into this model. It's an extremely powerful technology, but it's not a person. It's not a being that has agency that is connected to the world, but it can deepfake that. There's been a call for a pause on AI for six months because we're not quite sure where we are. What's your reaction? Wesley uh, was triggered by a particular kind of fear and it's the fear of existential risk from artificial intelligence. And the thought here is that if we are building systems that are smarter than us and we give these systems agency and motivation and the ability to self-improve, then they will probably self-improve very quickly beyond the level of human beings. And they will have their own plans and agenda and even if we give them a plan initially and their plan is for instance make some money for me on the stock market 
then they might uh, game the stock market so hard that the financial system crashes and everybody dies uh, because we can no longer buy food. Or if we build a system that is uh, regulating something on the planet, it just in order to do this, it might uh, start to become more and more powerful and take agency away from people. And if it's really smarter than us, then maybe if you get into a conflict with it, it will win. And it might not actually hate us. Maybe it has the same relationship that you have to the ants in your kitchen. They're just in the way. And it gets rid of them because we, from maybe from the perspective of the system, we don't serve a purpose. And the probability of that happening is very hard to quantify because this has never happened before, right? We cannot really put numbers on it. But if it's only a 1% probability that it could happen and humanity could go it's extinct because we build a machine that goes into competition with us, that's very scary, right? And this was uh, something that led to this letter. So the people behind this letter got together because they thought there is an existential risk that is larger than the risk from a nuclear war. This technology might um, eradicate life on Earth, possibly, right? This is what they're scared about. And even the probability is not high. Even if it's a tiny probability, the, the risk itself is so large, right? That if you multiply the bad effect with the probability of it coming, it's thought maybe we need to put more research into making this technology safe to make sure that this doesn't happen. So let's delay this. But none of the big companies actually signed it. Uh, so it's not like Google and OpenAI and so on said, uh, we want to have this moratorium. Elon Musk signed it. But Elon Musk at the same time started his own AI company and wanted to build uh, ChooseGPT, a system that unlike uh, ChatGPT knows what's true and has criteria for proving what's true. And uh, the computer scientist uh, Rao Subramkati suggested, imagine that you are building a new AI company, let's call it X, and uh, you want to get on the level of all the other companies, how long would you need them to pause? But how does six to eight months sound? <laughs> right? So maybe there is an ulterior motive in some of the support for this. And a lot of the people who signed this letter don't actually believe in uh, AI happening in a way that has agency, that becomes like people. They believe that AI is going to be a dumb technology that is creating disruption in society. And they're worried about the disruption that exists. And they think we should uh, regulate it to make sure that there is no disruption. And personally, I think that is a bad argument. If you think about the internet, the internet has created tremendous disruption in society. And if uh, we would have lots of ethics people and regulators uh, existing at the beginning of the internet, we probably wouldn't have an internet because they would have rightly jo uh, pointed at the difficulties of social media and pornography and uh, all the other things and scams that are happening on the internet that all have manifested as we know today. But they would have missed the tremendous utility of the internet, the benefit that we get that the world's knowledge is available at your fingertips for everybody on the planet right now. It's a very difficult thing though, isn't it? I mean, you know, AI regulation, so what we're doing in the UK is different than what is happening uh, in Europe. So we've got different approaches globally that's going yes. on. What's your view on regulation, good or bad? Do you welcome it or not? I think that in the long run, there has to be regulation, but it should happen based on the understanding of what we are regulating and the goals of the regulation. Regulation by itself, for its own sake, is rarely good because it is going to act on the incentives of the existing stakeholders in society. At the moment, we don't know what the disruptive effects are. We are seeing very little effects of these technologies at this point. And I think we should impose regulation when we can see what the effect of them is going to be. There are a lot of people that basically see their raison d'etre in warning about effects. And this is how they get on stages, that that's how they get to be public influencers. Right now, if you want to make money in tech, you either need to be super smart and understand something that nobody else is 
understanding so you can advance the, uh, the state of the art. Or you need to be a warner. And if you are a warner and critic, you don't, don't have any barrier to entry. There is no, nobody holds you accountable for when your warnings don't come true. You don't need to understand statistics very well. You just need to have the right political opinions that resonate with the public at any given time. And so I think that we are not in the right position to do regulation yet. Regulation is important, right? There are things that are happening due to this technology that people did not expect. And we need regulation to catch up with these cases, right? This is very clearly we need regulation to what kind of data we can be using for models that are using the data in particular ways and produce particular results, right? This is clearly something that needs to happen. But uh, it also needs to be happening with respect to the expected outcomes. And one of the expected outcomes is we are currently developing a technology that has the potential to be more useful than even the Internet. So it's extremely powerful. It's mind-blowing what we can do with it. And it, I think it's going to be beautiful what we can do with it because it's empowering. It enables us to build things that we couldn't do before. And our economy and our well-being economy does not depend on the existing jobs. It depends on what we can produce and distribute to each other. We always find something to keep ourselves busy. Don't worry about that. We have so much to do in life. We have kids, we have friends, we have art to do, we have thoughts to develop, things to build. And this is not going to stop with the new technology. And I think it's important to build this new technology in such a way that it is empowering, that it is available to everybody, that it empowers everyone. So you hear at how the light gets in. Um, what's it like being at this type of event as opposed to going to, say, a purely tech event for you? Uh, I like to be at events like this. And uh, I think that we have a disconnect in our society between those people who observe reality and those who model reality. And this means that a lot of the academic fields are not aware of some parts of reality that are aware to every, uh, everybody else or to everyday people. And uh, so I think it's very important to get society together to create joint perspectives. One of the panels Dr. Bach took part in was about quantum computing, which seems, along with AI, to be another of the latest buzzwords in the tech industry. Companies and governments, including in the UK, are investing heavily in its development. But will it, as a technology, live up to its fabled promises? My name is um, Professor Ruth Olsen. I'm a professor of quantum photonics, um, and I'm a professor at the University of Bristol. So let's start at the beginning. What is quantum computing? So quantum computing is when you are programming a computer in a completely different way using the fundamental bits, not as flows of electrons, but you're actually using single particles with quantum properties. And the, the unique thing about it is there's not just a single particle. These can be in this sort of quantum state, which is called a superposition state. And it's um, you can link two particles together by this thing called entanglement, which is when um, two particle states depend on each other, even if you, if you change one, the other one changes as well. It's quite unique quantum property. And what you're doing with quantum computer is linking up all these different quantum particles. They might be atoms, they might be electrons, they might be photons, and learning how to put them into particular superposition and quantum states so that you're effectively doing a program. And the program is to sort of, let's say, change the single state of an electron, and that will be part of the, the, the computation. But what it will do is it'll affect several other particles in that quantum computer. 
But because they're in a this so-called superposition state, they can be in both states at the same time, you actually have a sort of a parallel version of the calculation. So you've got several versions of the calculation running at the same time, actually. So, so what it allows you to do, there's very specific algorithms that you can apply to a quantum computer that allow you to calculate lots of things in parallel. And what that does, it means is that specific calculations should be much, much faster than on a, any, any conceivable supercomputer we have right now. So it sounds quite mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Apparently people have been saying for 30 years now, quantum computing is just around the corner. What are we talking about now? Yes, people were beginning to discuss it 30 years ago. It was just ideas. People began to start working on what these, these, these single particle qubits, quantum bits, might possibly be. About, say, 20 years ago, that's when I started in the field, and it was literally just playing around with them, seeing whether you can get them into these superposition states, whether you can achieve entanglement, even just achieving that small step, really, in, um, um, was quite a big leap, and it's taken us quite a longer time to achieve that reliably um, and, and consistently, even with one or two particles. But what we need to do is put, let's say, a thousand a million of these particles together in a completely controllable way and that's what's taking us time so even though yes we've been doing this for 30 years we are really are starting from scratch and i you know if i had to sort of uh, make a bet i would say we're not going to see a quantum computer in the next five years it might be more like 10 years 15 years but if you look at actually how classical computing developed i mean the ideas around computing were there you know in the second world war we know that the idea of making calculations using transistors, well, they started off with valve transistors, then they moved to integrated circuits with silicon. That all took 30, 40 years to get some even some basic computing going, and we can see that that's still developing today. So it's just about coming to the end of, of what's possible today. So really, these things take a very, very, very long time to develop. If you achieve it, I'm saying if, when... Is it if or if, is it when? I think it's... It, it, it is an if, but I think it's a very optimistic if. I think it's more like when. I, I think it's... fair. I'm fairly confident that we will achieve it as long as the funding keeps coming and, and people keep on trying to do it. Um, I think it's very unpredictable when it will happen because there are specific challenges that need solving. It's not clear when and who and how we're going to solve those challenges. But I think that we will do Give me your view on, on where the funding comes from in general. So, you know, that's government funding that you're getting, but it's not all from government funding, is it? No, there's, there's a mixture of government funding, and the funding is for fundamental research that I do, but it's also for helping um, companies form and, and, and develop. But also now there's a lot of funding coming from venture capitalists and from industry who are beginning to realise that they, they increasingly want to bet on quantum technologies, and that means that they're really beginning to invest now so that's that's where the different parts of money come from so the government's going to invest 2.5 billion over the next 10 years is that enough doesn't sound much over 10 years you're right it does well i think the investment isn't the only investment that's going to be occurring in quantum technologies it is going to be the private investment and it has to be in the end um because the government isn't going to be making and selling quantum computers it's going to be tech firms that are going to do that so in the end what the government's doing is it's putting funding into targeted areas that it thinks are winners so that so that it can 
get the technology to a point that the private companies will pick it up and develop it further. So the important thing to know about quantum computing is that it's not going to replace our laptops. It's not a general purpose computer in that sense, even though we are talking about a universal quantum computer. What really it's useful for is doing calculations on very complex systems and very specific challenges. So these range from factoring numbers. That's a very, very important problem for cryptography, but also things like simulating new materials. So we talked in the debate about about um, superconductors and the reason why quantum computers should be able to do that better is that superconductors get their properties from, from the quantum properties of electrons inside the material and how they interact with the with the atoms there is very complex and they themselves go into a rich variety of superposition states which are quantum states and so we know that the only way to simulate that efficiently is using another quantum system if we did it classically we'd have to start off and go through each one of the superposition states in turn and that would take an unfeasibly long time we know that so we hope to develop new materials new techniques I think there will be there's a possibility that things like um, the traveling salesman problem will become faster with a quantum computer for example um, and things like that so that that affects things like logistics how what's the quickest route to somewhere when you're sort of got to visit a certain number of, of, of cities and so on I mean that traveling salesman problem is an unsolved problem and I I'm not saying the quantum computers will quote-unquote solve it in a mathematical sense, but they might make it faster. The travelling salesman problem is now, you could call it the Amazon problem, right? couldn't you? Because that's exactly what these Amazon trucks do. They, they go around and there, there must be some central computer figuring out where these drivers are going and, and who's going to deliver what and, and which route they should take. And that, that's something that maybe a quantum computer could solve. So we're at the wonderful How the Light Gets In. Um, we can hear some guitars in the background. There's a lot of catering going on just behind us, which we were hearing earlier, and uh, there's various uh, talks on all sorts of things, including tech. What's your reaction to being in this kind of a sphere as opposed to something that's purely academic or purely technical? So the first thing I noticed when I came in is how much more relaxed the atmosphere is compared to being at a sort of a normal event, even an outreach event or... Or, or things like that, certainly more than a, a, a technical conference. People are very here are very in an open-minded frame of mind when they're here, and they're more um, interested in a wider range of views than if I would say go to a shopping centre, for example, where people are not really interested in having deep thoughts. People want to come here to have deep thoughts, and they, they want to be stimulated by the idea of this new thing called quantum computing. It's also, um, I think, even, even good for me to hear a wider variety of perspectives on what is quite a, a technical field really and, and um, try to distill out from all the technical aspects the really important social aspects as well um, that's also really important because the audience this morning was made up of some very technical people asking you very precise things and then people just asking saying well how does it work and I thought that was the beauty of, of this morning sitting in, in the audience there did you have that same feeling yeah absolutely and and it was very clear that there were some people there that who, you know, you could tell that they were generally very technically able and had read something about quantum computing and just weren't sure about it. And there was, you know, we got a question that was simply, I just don't understand how this works. How is it all, how is it all possible? And sometimes these are the most difficult questions to answer because, you know, um, you could say, well, what you really need to do is is, is, is a whole physics degree and a, and a PhD, which is unfair. Um, it's not easy to get these concepts across. 
in a way that is convincing that you don't need to understand everything but, but you, you can explain the fundamental principles but it's about convincing people that yes there is a basis to what we're doing here. Neil Turok, the Higgs Chair of Theoretical Physics at the University of Edinburgh, specialises in mathematical physics and early universe physics. So what did he think about quantum computing? Could it be useful in his line of work, which is to understand the origins of the universe? I have been involved in uh, indirectly in uh, quantum computing because I was director of the Perimeter Institute in Canada, which is the largest centre for theoretical physics in the world. And next door was the Institute of Quantum Computing, uh, which was one of the pioneering experimental institutes trying to build a quantum computer. So I, I've been reasonably familiar both with the search for funding for quantum computing and with the science and the technology. Uh, my view is that uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon, but there is a lot of very good science being done. And the, the fact that sort of people focus on a computer coming out, which they typically imagine will be way faster than a, the computers we have now uh, in every way, you know, th that's very misleading. Quantum computers are very different. They incredibly difficult to make. And so I don't expect uh, a useful quantum computer by the end of this decade. Uh, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I, I don't expect one on the basis of, of, of the progress we see. What's really interesting about quantum computers is they operate in the same way nature does. They use the laws, the same laws that electrons and protons use inside atoms. And so the, the whole advent of quantum computing you can really see as a consequence of our scaling down the size of um, individual transistors on silicon chips where we're now reaching the size of the atom and basically we have to deal with nature on its own terms and nature doesn't work in zeros and ones uh, it's a very fascinating side of nature that it works in this uncertain um, sort of exploratory quantum way where a particle can explore many states at once uh, before sort of deciding where it is. Uh, when, you, when you observe it, it has to decide. And um, so I think we're, we're learning to deal with nature on its own terms, process information in the way nature does. And there may be all kinds of benefits of this, uh, understanding how materials work, uh, simulating materials on a quantum computer, and uh, designing new uh, drugs, understanding how uh, proteins operate and fold. And so it could be extremely interesting to have a quantum computer to simulate uh, real uh, materials on. Uh, has there been hype? Yes, uh, there's been a lot of hype, but that seems to be the world we live in. You know, funding comes with, with hype and, and encourages hype. Is there something interesting going on? Yes, there is. But I don't think it's going to live up to the expectations some people have. So in your own field, yes. early universe, yes. could you have used a quantum computer? Would it have been beneficial? 
Uh, yes, a quantum computer would be absolute uh, magic for people like me. Uh, why? Because I am trying to understand the reconciliation of quantum mechanics and gravity. Uh, gravity is described by the curvature of space and time, and Einstein described this very beautifully, but a hundred years ago, in a theory which, as far as we know now, is not compatible with quantum mechanics. Um, so I study every day the issue, the contradictions between Einstein's theory of gravity and quantum mechanics. If we had a quantum mechanical computer to study these theories and simulate, uh, uh, we would be able to, for example, describe the Big Bang singularity, what happened there. Uh, and, and what we would actually learn is about the, the laws of physics which take us beyond Einstein's theory. Um, and beyond the laws of particle physics, which are studied at CERN and uh, big colliders. And I think, you know, that whole field of how you reconcile the laws of uh, particle physics, um, forces like electromagnetism and the nuclear force and gravity, I, I truly believe we're on the threshold of understanding their unification. It, it probably won't be string theory, uh, it's going to be something much simpler, much more economical, much more principled, and much more predictive. And to make the predictions, it would be fantastic to have a quantum computer uh, to translate our mathematical equations into, you know, numbers which we could compare with experiment. So we're here at the uh, How the Light Gets In Festival. We can hear music in the background. We've just heard some catering action going on behind us, and <laughs> yeah. somebody else is going past with the trolley. It's all going on, I tell yes. you. Yes. But for you, as, a, as an, an academic professor, how, how, what does it feel like to come to an event like this? You know, it, I, think it's, uh, I think it's wonderful. Um, I did go to, I've been to TED several times in California, which has a huge buzz uh, associated with it. I uh, was lucky to win the TED Prize uh, in 2008. Um, and so, uh, you know, talked at the top of my voice for about four hours continuously in a packed tent. <laughs> Wouldn't be possible now with COVID and all that, but completely lost my voice due to the level of excitement and, and enthusiasm. This is very British, which is much more low key. Um, but it's in a beautiful spot. It's out in the sunshine in the Hereford countryside. And uh, what's exciting to me is to see the, the desire in people from all walks of life, you know, to know what's going on. So there's a very high level of curiosity, which I think is very, very positive. People want to look behind the headlines. If you're used to going to a tech conference or listening to bands in a field, a music and philosophy festival which mixes Nobel Prize winners with Bell and Sebastian playing a DJ set might, at first glance, seem odd. But it's an approach that does connect ordinary people with those who can talk them through mind-blowing concepts. 
Hilary Lawson, festival founder and editorial director of the festival, said it's a combination that works. Well, I think we, we've obviously been running a little while now, you know, 10 years or so, and we're always looking for the edge of ideas and trying to identify those areas that are most central for things for us to explore and examine. And uh, I think that when we started, there was maybe an idea that philosophy was rather abstract, uh, didn't really have any impact on the world, uh, rather technical and unimportant. And instead, we are focused always on the big picture. What is the big story? Uh, What sense can we make of it? And to identify the issues that we have here and now that we're facing. And so all of the debates you would have very much about where are we now, but focusing on those big questions which uh, we see as being philosophical questions, is we, uh, and we've always felt that's what philosophy should be about. It should be trying to build that big picture, and that has direct impact in some areas of, of science. We are just wanting to be at the edge, properly where the big stuff is happening, but we don't talk about it with jargon. Um, it seems to me the, the uh, universities are unfortunately rather full of, of, of frameworks where there's a lot of long words but not much actual conversation about what is the issue that we're talking about. And so from the outset we have no time for pretension and for you know uh, sounding clever but we do have the brightest people in the world talking about those issues. But a bit like when you watch a news debate, you don't necessarily need to know everything about current affairs to understand that this person is on this side and that person's on that side. And you can be more or less engaged in what they're saying, depending on how much you know about what the topic is. What I've really enjoyed is actually seeing like the huge audiences in the arena and a, quite a combination of people. You've got some of the, the sort of people with the knowledge of this area and others who are just asking questions because they're curious but everybody seems very engaged they're taking notes Uh, it's to me it just seems like an amazing um Amazing well, the people in the audience. One of the things that we have with the people who host is one of the things we warn them, do not patronise the audience because it is very possible that there is a Nobel Prize winner three rows down asking a question. And that is how it is. I mean, quite early on, I remember that George Ellis asking a question who's um, wrote, a, wrote a paper with uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, actually one of the leading figures, and the host didn't quite realise. They sort of, oh, well, it's just somebody asking a question in the back. And it's not like that. The the audience is really engaged and what I think, I hope we've demonstrated is you can talk about the biggest, most complicated things in the world without it being impenetrable. You don't have to dumb things down, you just have to not engage in any pretense. You can hear in the background we've got music. You've got a lot of bands here as well. Music on the site is a key part of it and actually one of the reasons we have music on the site is it's very easy to have a sort of conference type feel in which uh, you know all of the authority is on the panel and everyone's sitting there you know, just taking notes you know at, at the feet of the great and whatever and we don't uh, we don't really believe in that idea um, you know you're just here you're just as likely to be in the queue getting coffee and the person next to you uh, is indeed the world's leading thinker about such and such that you happen to end up chatting to uh, as um, 
uh, as anyone else. And uh, that's to try and create a sort of leveling space where you actually talk about ideas. You're not about status or position or celebrity or anything. We have lots of celebrities, but we have, but that's not where we are. Uh, everyone just mixes in. And that's to try and create an environment where we actually have a conversation. The next How the Light Gets In festival is being held in London in the grounds of Kenwood House on September 23rd to 24th. To find out more, head over to the How the Light Gets In website for tickets and the latest details. <laughs>